welcome to Buenta Vista episode 87. Creeping up on that 100 episodes. That's when it gets syndicated and all the money really starts pouring in from the networks. Uh, that's how I understand it anyway. Maybe it won't work out like that. Ben, do you have any information for me about the syndication of a series such as this? I don't really understand how syndication would work with a podcast. Is that just other podcasts airing episodes of this podcast? I think we just continue to let people listen to it. <laughs> I think it's it's kind of already syndicated in the traditional sense in that it's everywhere. Yeah, I guess so. Super hmm. syndicated. It's mandatory to listen to it. It's government mandated, yes. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> In a socialist utopia, yes, ideally, will be government mandated to listen to the show. Um, Lucy is here as well. Hi, Lucy. Hi, hello. I, I don't even know anymore what country you're in. I'm back in America. I'm back in Hawaii. Okay. Yes, I have returned. I, it's very late. I can't tell from week to week anymore. <laughs> it's too, it um, it's too to frequent. Change very swiftly. I thought you were back for a while. I was, and now, and now I'm back here. Let's not talk to any authorities about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not right. get into whose visa says what, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and we have a guest joining us today. Uh, we have with us, all the way from uh, places on the internet, like uh, Rough Cut and uh, The Guardian and The Big Issue and Time Out Sydney and everything, um, we have... Managing editor of new uh, film criticism website Rough Cut, it is um, Debbie Zhao. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Is this your first ever podcast? Uh, I think so. I think I've only been on radio, but never on podcast. So. Oh, I feel like oh, radio is better. Don't say radio. Radio is much better. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it was community radio. It's okay. Oh, it's okay. okay. I think we're equal. That's with it's podcast radio. level. <laughs> There we go. Oh, dear. What a damning indictment of all of these platforms. Um, So, we asked Debbie to come on and have a chat to us about a a piece that she wrote in uh, Guardian Australia recently, uh, titled, These Actors Are Doing Huge Things in Hollywood, So Why Isn't Hollywood Celebrating Them? Uh, And I guess the the general gist of the piece is that, um, you know, we've got a lot of uh, very interesting actors of color in Australia and from different backgrounds who are out there, you know, doing really big things. They're out in Hollywood movies and in huge franchises and uh, massive grossing things. And just no one in the Australian media seems to talk about it much. Uh, one of the examples that you sort of have right off the bat is um, James Wan, who I think I, I knew him starting off from the Saw series when he directed the first Saw movie, um, which seems like it was a long time ago now. I think it was. <laughs> it it was, was quite a long yeah. time ago. No. <laughs> they have done six million Saw movies since then, haven't they? Mm. Yeah, unfortunately. And I've read the Wikipedia synopsis for all of them <laughs> instead of watching them. Uh, the middle ones is such a drag. I'm always comparing um, the Saw series to the Hellraiser series because the first couple are kind of interesting and have a bit of a mythos or whatever, and then all the ones in the middle they've clearly just bought the script for like a middling uh seven knockoff and then said and put jigsaw in for a scene at the end oh it's got hellraiser disease yep bad mm-hmm. case of hellraiser disease um 2004 which when you think about it quite a while it's a while quite a while ago but um but he's apart from establishing that which i think is i don't know besides maybe like final destination is is that kind of the 2000s horror franchise? I think so. I think Saw was huge. Any like, other, the rest of them are terrible, folks? but the first movie was it was incredible at the time. I feel like, uh, like Saw, um, the Paranormal Activity ones, mm-hmm. and... Blair Witch know, Project. Yes. Oh, yeah, there were, like, three <laughs> of those, right? Definitely. No, they so. did. The, the, there was the f- Has anyone ever seen the sequel to The Blair Witch? Oh, Book boy, of Shadows. Howdy. Have I? <laughs> it's not good. Wowee. I don't know who chose to follow up, like, uh, revolutionizing found footage with that movie. Uh, extremely bad. I don't think I've ever been more disappointed in a cinema than watching <laughs> the second Blair Witch movie. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think, you know, that's obviously a. 
massive franchise that he established. Um, he's gone mm-hmm. on to work on, uh, I think, pretty much all the biggest entries in the Fast and the Furious franchise. Oh, wow. Yeah, he directed... I'm pretty sure he's directed, like, the last however many of those. Does anyone know? Anybody know off the top of their head? I didn't really think those movies were directed so much as just... Just assembled. They just, just happened. happened. You get, like, a bunch of really huge muscular men in cars uh, into some exotic areas, and then the movies just kind of come together. Uh, he did Furious 7, which is one of the better ones, to my mind. Oh, yes. Yes, he did The Conjuring. Yes. I like oh, The Conjuring. The Conjuring was good, and I hate horror movies. Oh, that was good. It was a good spooky movie. Um, all kinds of stuff. But, uh, and then that but, yeah. kind of blew up in itself, didn't it? Because with The Conjuring 2, and then The Nun, and all of that. And Annabelle, and Annabelle yeah. Creation. It was The Nun <laughs> also in the, the Conjuring universe? I believe so. Wow. Was, was it a, a pre- prequel? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Weird how they managed to just... Blast anything out of there. Um, but that series definitely seems to be a bit of a diminishing returns kind of <laughs> Well, and, and with a lot of those, obviously, the more sequels they do, the further out of the hands of, of the original directors and writers they go as well. Um, he also did Death Sentence, which was that uh, Kevin Bacon, like, it was, it was a, like, revenge, uh, revenge thriller type thing. But I think it was made out of the same source material that Death Wish was made from. So it's like based on the same novel as uh, Death Sentence. Kevin Bacon looking really sad, shaving okay. his head, killing thugs. Ooh, just uh, they're coming up on. Uh, well, they will soon be commencing work on the eighth movie in the Conjuring universe, as the oh, Wikipedia damn. article calls it. Eight. Hmm. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, wowzers. Wowzerinos. So, so when you think about it. <laughs> like, James James Wan's been pretty instrumental in, like, three gigantic franchises that have turned over an absolute shitload of money. Um, but as Debbie points out in her piece, uh, people don't really talk about James Wan the same way they talk about, like, Peter Weir or Baz Luhrmann or other people for, for their sort of um, significance in the movie industry. Uh, are there any, any other people from the piece, Debbie, that... Um, was sort of do you think are missing out on a lot of attention? Yeah, so I mean James Wan is the big one because he, you know, obviously as you said, set up these franchises. Um, but you know, we have also people who are coming up as well who maybe aren't as established as James Wayne, but the thing is you know, like actors like um, Chris Payne, uh, Remy He, um, Ronnie Shane, who were in Crazy Rich Asians, which was um, a really big film that kind of took the world by storm last year. Um, and they are Australian. So the thing is, you know, why aren't we talking about them um, the way we're talking about people like Margot Robbie? So when Margot Robbie had her first break um, in Hollywood, it was this massive thing um so i think there is a comparison to be made between the way that we talk about even rising stars as well as established um creatives like james one so yeah i think there are definitely um like I, i can really imagine a lot of people sort of defending this idea by saying oh well you know nicole kidman's had a a 30 year long career and um you know, or Mel Gibson and other people, you know, they've, they've been working for, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and that's why they have this really established reputation. Um, except that, like you're saying, the, the rising stars are treated differently as well. And on the subject of, uh, Nicole and, um, that whole, that whole weird convention in Australia of when we are particularly proud of somebody, um, we, people collectively refer to them as uh, Nicole, uh, Nicole Kidman. Except that it turns out, if you if you run down that list, you know there's a lot of people, and I know that a lot of people out there are aware of this kind of stuff. But like, a lot of the people on that list of very established, uh, mainstream, beloved Australian celebrities and movie stars um, aren't from Australia. Nicole Kidman, born in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Mrs. Nicole Kidman, Mr. Nicole Kidman, Keith Urban, born in New Zealand. They love him here, by the way. Everyone I meet says, do you like Keith Urban? Really? <laughs> it's bizarre. It's so weird. They love him. Oh, he, he went over there and got massive, didn't he? He's huge like, here. In Hawaii? Just in America in general, not Hawaii specifically. <laughs> um, Sam Worthington, who is the most tradey looking actor in Hollywood, um, born in Surrey in England. Uh, I, I'm not sure I even realised. Mel Gibson, born yeah, in New York. Mel Gibson, yep. We just like uh, to preci- claim them. Yeah. Precious yeah. National Treasure Sam Neill, uh, born in the UK. So I always thought he was a Kiwi for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, I, well, I was checking to see, and it turns out it's the UK. Isla Fisher, born in Oman. Sure. Wow. Okay, sure. Why not? <laughs> yep. Uh, Guy Pearce from the UK. Naomi, Naomi Watts, Watts. Yeah, I was about born to say, in England. Yeah. Uh, big old rusty crow, of course, born in New Zealand. Mm, rude. And um, national <laughs> treasure and bachelorette, <laughs> Sophie Monk, born in London. <laughs> no. Wow, got a real list going here, Andrew. <laughs> and I'm sure we could keep going, no. but um, but of course, none of that is to say that any any of the people that we're talking about are like less Australian if their family is from somewhere else or if they emigrated here or anything. But it's very telling to see who is considered like an Australian actor and who is embraced by the industry. Yeah. This is like a weird thing for me reading Derby's piece is like, I genuinely thought for so long, because I'd read about James Wan directing Saw, that because we never talked about him, he must have been one of these Australians that was like born in a different country, like Nicole Kidman. Because it's bizarre that we never talk about him. Yeah. Mm. And I think, like, um, definitely with Saw, you know, maybe, like, the film people really knew he was Australian. And I I had seen some pieces come out or people talking about, you know, oh, we already knew about him all along and now we're only starting to talk about him. Um, But the thing is, I think with the wider general Australian public, um, knowing that he's actually Australian, I think that's a very different Mm. Like there's a distinction there with um, mm. the awareness. Yeah. Well, here's um, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, Lee Lee Wannell, who was in the the original Saw movie, he mm. was the guy who was um, chained up in the room with Carrie Elwes, and um, he he was like the co-writer for the movie, I think, with James. Yeah, Wyatt. that sounds right. Yeah, and and I would argue that like he has gone on to be a more like publicly visible Australian in the entertainment industry than James Wan, despite, you know, sort of having, having sort of smaller parts in things. He had those parts like in the Conjuring movies with Angus Sampson, was it? Um, so, you know, he, he pops up and stuff here or there. And I'm, I'm sure that like way more people could tell you that he's Australian or would identify him as Australian, um, despite, having i guess way way less of a hand in Mm. very big um Mm -hmm. influential movies and and you know you do sort of talk about like like we were saying before like margot robbie had a couple of parts in things in big movies and then it was like all right this is the new australian film starlet yeah Um, yeah yeah and and like you know it's just like we said, it's just very telling to see who is considered by the Australian media to be like a quintessentially Australian actor. And in her case, it's, you know, obviously because she is very conventionally attractive and white and blonde, um, which fits, which fits like, the I image. think what, well, at, at this point, it's like a really outdated Australian stereotype. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, like, it's outdated, but you know, people still, buy into it um and it's still predominantly what we see on in our media you know what i mean like not only in our media but also on our screens um so you know we we have an issue like not only you know what we read and stuff but also what we watch on broadcast tv you know it's predominantly still very white um i think you know like isabella kwai wrote this great piece in the new york times that was about why Asian Australians, you know, who are born here um, and want to be actors, 
kind of need to look overseas for roles and opportunities. Mm. And so, you know, what we're seeing as the Australian in the media, like generally across entertainment, you know, um, newspapers, etc., is predominantly that image, like you were talking about that outdated image of what a, an Australian looks like. It's one version of what an Australian looks like. So, yeah, I think it, it's a problem that kind of is everywhere. It's not just within you know, how we talk about stars. And I mean, that's why it's still so prevalent. Um, and this issue is, it, it is, it is quite a structural issue rather than just, um, what it, what it looks like. Right. Well, I think, I think, yeah, the, the sort of flip side to that in terms of being a structural issue, like you're saying, actors need to, to look to other markets to get roles that they aren't being offered here. Mm. And I think part of that, that I've, that I've definitely seen discussed before is like, um, like like something that was good in Crazy Rich Asians was seeing like a, a cast of um, of male uh, so like all, all of the lead male actors mm-hmm. were very clearly just like handsome masculine dudes like it's a romantic comedy you know um, it's it's pretty I guess it's like you know at, at at its core it is a romantic comedy and is and is relatively like uh, light material in that sense. You can just say um, you liked it, Andrew. You can say you enjoyed <laughs> looking at them. They're uh, handsome men what? in that film. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. There are handsome dudes in that film, and there are like uh, shots of them with their shirts off, looking muscly, and like some very deliberately framed lighting on abs and stuff like that. And to me, that kind of really, like, that really draws a contrast to. Um, you know, some of the other movies that we're talking about where I think a lot of the times the typecast roles that, like, Asian men are offered are, like, emasculated in comparison to, yeah. to like, the Western leads. Um, and, and, yeah, I think you as soon as you're watching cinema from outside of Australia or outside mm-hmm. of, like, very mainstream American movies, that contrast is, like, really apparent. Um <coughs> Hundred percent. Um, I mean, even as a film in America, I mean, that was a really big deal because I mean, it was the first film that um, was, I think, funded by a major, st- first all um, American cast in twenty five years since the Joy Luck Club. To um, oh, I was going to ask what the last mm, one was. Yeah, and that yeah, was Joy, Joy Luck Club. Club. Okay. Yeah. That's a long time ago. <laughs> Indeed. And so I think that's why it was such a big deal. And, and what your observation is like really good because, yeah, it's true. Like we never really see Asian men as being quote unquote attractive in, in films like this. And I think the way that John Chu directed this film um, was deliberately, you know, um, like, un, you know, unashamedly um, showing Asian men as being attractive. And, and that is definitely a big part of the rom-com genre. So I um, I think in a lot of ways that film broke a lot of ground, it, you know, not just for Hollywood studio to make that much money um, um, as a racial, racially diverse cast, but, you know, a lot of the audiences, you know, responded to that. And so I think those that correlation um, really yeah it was kind of a really major stepping stone in in what hollywood's been green lighting over the last year or two i think yeah and i suppose it's also interesting to see like um you know netflix as a content producer for example mm-hmm. um when you when you read the figures on like the amount of money that they're sinking into producing new content like new tv shows and movies and everything it's pretty it's pretty staggering it's pretty mind boggling but it also means that they can just like be a lot more adventurous and try out a lot more stuff and i think that they can see areas of success that much more sort of um risk averse studios like traditional studios um wouldn't and uh, i i guess what what you just touched on there is sort of interesting to me as well because um there's there's a quote in the article jesus (laughs) It's going to make a note to edit out the rustling in the fridge that's happening over here. Um, 
So there's a quote from the article where you were saying um, a, a 2018 study by UCLA found a growing and direct correlation correlation between top grossing films and diverse casts with the most racially and ethnically homogenous casts in the study performing poorest on average at the box office. Uh, by neglecting Asian Australian stories, the Australian media may not just be failing any ethical obligations for diversity. They may, like Hollywood, be missing out on a huge potential audience too. And... Yeah, obviously that's that's a very interesting thing in the first place. Just to see um, that you know the the changing demographics of countries mean that um, people are going to be more likely to be drawn to you know things where they're more likely to see someone who looks like them on the screen. And you know, I've, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before, but like I I find it endlessly hilarious to see people like losing their minds about marvel doing like a thor movie where there's like an asian viking and a black viking and people <laughs> people get super mad about it and um and i'm like so you've, you're fine with like the elves and the lasers <laughs> and the spaceships and everything you know it's pretty clear that marvel's thor is not uh, intended as a faithful adaptation of norse mythology it's like it's Thor from the comic books as he has been for the last, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years or whatever. Um, but it is very funny to see people's people's reactions to the that outrage. Stuff. Oh, <laughs> people get so mad about it and it's great. I, I genuinely love it. And I don't know how people can't just stop themselves and take a step back and go, oh, yeah, it's it's it's, Thor, it's the space Viking movie from the comic book people. Um, he's hanging out with the Hulk. He's hanging out with the Hulk. But um, but yeah, this this stuff for me kind of gets gets back into that territory of like um, it always makes me think of uh, a, a tweet by someone on Twitter at uh, Nega Versace. Um, you know, is pop star a feminist? Is Mastercard a queer ally? Is this TV show my friend? So like, I'm always kind of torn with the the discussion of like representation politics in media because on one hand i always sort of say to myself like yeah how how much are we supposed to be like patting marvel on the back for making you know for for like immediately making the money back on their multi-billion dollar investments of buying star wars and marvel and stuff like that um but also obviously i think it is good that people can go to the movies and see people like them on the screen. Or in the case of Crazy Rich Asians, a, a part of that that I thought was really good was that, I guess, unlike a lot of Western rom-coms, the sort of core thread of the story was around, I guess, um, something that's a, a much more innately Asian cultural experience of how, how their family was interacting with people. And... Um, yeah just just being accepted into a family and status and all that sort of stuff like all that stuff struck me as being much more kind of like drawing out an experience that is very relevant to asian culture as opposed to just doing a rom-com with an asian cast if you know what i mean yeah i mean i do get what you mean but i also do think that um crazy rich asians in a way was this you know it was ultimately just a rom-com um in a lot of ways and it never really kind of pushed the whole cultural angle in a way that was that felt like it was just there for you know show um it was just very much embedded in the story um it's just an enjoyable rom-com in my opinion you know it uses those cultural um if there's any cultural conflicts and you know between the mother and the um and the daughter-in-law the future daughter-in-law um i mean those are conflicts that happen outside you know, Chinese culture as well. Hmm. So I think, you know, why Crazy Rich Asians did so well globally um, isn't just the fact that, you know, more, you know, more people saw themselves on screen and so people bought more tickets. I mean, that was one factor, but I think generally people who weren't, you know, Asian necessarily love to just watch a really enjoyable rom-com where they don't see people like them on screen as well. You know, like, just like I've been, you know, watching predominantly white films if i'm watching western films they tend to be predominantly white films for yeah for 
10 years, right? So that's that's my, and it's not that I, it decreases my level of enjoyment because the people on screen don't look like me. Um, of course, if they do look like me, then yeah, perhaps there's a little bit more of a connection there. But, you know, I think movies are inherently about empathy. Um, that's just, you know, the basic not nutshell <laughs> of, of the film. And so if, if it can connect with you, then, um, you know, it, it goes across cultures. And I think Crazy Rich Asians in that sense as a romantic comedy did that. You know, it is just a really refreshing fun romantic comedy um so yeah i i agree and and that it was just an enjoyable film and like there's there's definitely a noticeable i think there's kind of a, a noticeable other thread of like um i guess representation stuff in cinema which is i, f I feel like there has been or is currently a crop of movies coming out which are like like you know the whole the, the entire thing around the Ghostbusters right. reboot or remake or whatever it was where they they did Ghostbusters again with a female cast mm -hmm. and once again a whole bunch of people lost their minds um, and went absolutely crazy about it and yet um, you compare that to the way they responded to Jason um, Reitman's um, new Ghostbusters film you know, yeah. returning it back into the hands of Ghostbusters. And um, so I, I uh, Ghost, yeah, Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, just Ghostbusters to make sure. Fans, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, cool. <laughs> just make sure I got the title right. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the and, and, and just silence from them, you know. It, it, people just feel very... Uh, everything's back to normal. <laughs> normal. Yeah, it's all okay <laughs> now, you know. Um, like, there's, there's also, like, um, like, I watched Ocean's 8, uh, the other day, which is Ocean's Eleven with women, and there's also this this new movie coming out called um, oh, what's it called? Uh, like The Hustle or something, and it's and it's um, Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson essentially right. doing a remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, right. and I and I feel like when I see that stuff, obviously, like I said, I you know half the time I watch the movies and they're fine or whatever, but as far as how they how they come to be that always seems to me much more transparently driven by the studio saying let's do this movie that's already like a successfully known quantity but with ladies like it's it seems way more driven by the studio saying oh we we think in a calculated way that this specific thing will be profitable as opposed totally. to crazy rich mm. agents which is obviously just like we're saying a good film unto itself yeah and and you're right i think um you know diversity is perhaps seen as a trend now by a lot of these studios who kind of are seeing oh look like it translates into profits um, and money which is always a thing that they like um but the you know i think you're right i mean i haven't seen Oce um, oceans uh eight but you know i've heard criticisms from female critics and and um stuff like that who didn't enjoy it and thought it was just, you know, literally just a remake and there was nothing new. So I think with like a lot of this stuff with female rebooting and, and, and like all of the films that are coming out because of it, we need to see more fresh takes on films, um, you know, and if you're going to do a reboot, then, you know, who are your cast and who are your crew? Because I think Ocean's 8 was directed by a man still, you know, and um, I, I, don't, I think we need to talk about, you know, not only like who's in front of the camera, but also who's behind the camera, because um, I think that can also make a difference with how the film is 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 revisioned, you know, now. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you can't just be talking about, you know, total face value because, yeah, you're right. With, with a lot of those films that are having female reboots, it is kind of a, a face value thing a lot of the time. Well, Ocean's 8 really struck me as being like... Um they, they essentially just slotted, like, um, Sandra Bullock into the George Clooney role. Mm. She, she was, like, his, his sister or something. Um, and they slotted Kate Blanchett into the Brad Pitt role. And, like, it, it was just very clear that the way that the dialogue was written and delivered and all that sort of stuff, they were just essentially subbing in for those characters with the same temperament and the same, you know, vocal delivery and all that sort of stuff. So it just... 
yeah, it, it had far more of a feeling of we're going to make another one of these movies and we will just in, insert women into the roles that we had yeah. marked out for men beforehand, you know. The lack of effort. That it's profitable, yeah. though. You know, that's the, that's the mean, flip it, yeah. side of it. It proves it's profitable, but also we shouldn't just be, like, that shouldn't be the solution. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like, we should be looking at, you know, how to make a film good. And, um, you know, if we're going to do Ocean's 8, why can't we have you know, these women who are made like the amazing cast, you know, they so, what a cast, you know, people just buy the ticket for them. Like, why don't we have them in a new film, their own franchise? Why do we need to have them already defined in this, you know, um, franchise that has been male dominated already? So, I mean, I can see the reasoning behind it and there is obviously a big marketing <laughs> um, campaign and stuff that works out because of it. But I think, yeah, it's it's not the solution, I don't think. Unless unless it's done in a way that is new, like genuinely like in a new way. Um so yeah. it's actually subverting the, yeah. the mm. expectations or the existing model or anything. Yeah, it's like they're doing um, it in a way that they think is the most palatable to people. But I don't think that's yeah. the case. I think people are ready to see completely new, diverse films. And it's just these movie studios that are like, Hey, what if we just do the same movie but with ladies or black people yeah and i think like like there's definitely examples of like a a lot of good recent examples of movies where you know they've they've turned over the reins of some massive property to a female director and it's done way better than the other movies in the same series by male directors i mean like um uh you know dc's wonder woman Yep. Was was like the big standout hit of that series, um, and what? Oh, I can't remember the director's name. All of a sudden. Oh, Patty Jenkins. Thank you. <laughs> oh, did you know Lucy? Did I you? did not. I did not know. But I was <laughs> taking the opportunity to shame you. <laughs> Just get in there. Wow. <laughs> this son of a bitch right here. Um, but yeah, like that, and that was, you know, that was obviously something where she was able to bring something to an entry in that series yeah. that, that the men who were directing the other ones uh, didn't. And people seemed extremely caught by surprise about it. <laughs> and it seems to happen over like, and over again. Women can direct action? What? You know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... I guess, uh, you know, the the other the other aspect of all of the representation stuff is as you sort of note in the article it is just a more accurate reflection of the society that we live in anyway yeah um as you've got here uh the 2016 census found that for the first time more australians were born overseas uh more australians born overseas come from asia than from europe um so you know we we have had a, a very shifting um demographic landscape for a long time and i think it's a very similar thing in the states where where they're um where yeah like the the proportion of the populace that is that's white has been gradually reducing over time when are they i'm trying to remember when they're projecting that that it's finally going to sort of go below 50 percent for white people over there I think the like, white can, genocide people say it's very soon. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they can really claim that minority status. Yeah. But I guess as, as far as like, um, you know, as Australian media, I guess the question is, why does the Australian media prioritize particular actors um, and directors and their careers over other people? Um, in your piece in The Guardian, you ask, is it another symptom of our under-resourced outlets? Is it because the audiences tend not to identify non-white immigrant Australians as our own? Or is it the fault of primarily white media institutions that overlook them, consciously or otherwise? And, um, yeah, I think, even, like we said, even the fact that, like, Margot Robbie would be considered, like, now that's what an Australian looks like. <laughs> an Australian looks like Lady Paul Hogan. Um, <laughs> blonde and tanned. Everything, like, um... Yeah, did you did you have any did you kind of settle in any particular direction with that, Debbie? I think it's really hard to pinpoint one reason um, why you know why, like why there's there's this inherent way of the media not looking at 
um, and not or not recognizing or celebrating these stars, which is why I kind of I listed them out because I I think there's I think there's a lot of different reasons, you know, because on one hand we have the, the whole editorial aspects um, of you know there are less spaces to talk about them, but you know with the spaces we have we we still are talking about them, um, and so yeah, definitely the the, the use of the word owl you know, or claiming them at least as Australians. So, you know, I use this example in my Guardian piece, but Geraldine Viswanathan, she's um, an Indian Swiss Australian uh, born in Newcastle and she's, you know, only 23 and she's gone off to America and done amazing things. Um, she broke out in a comedy role called Blockers um, and she was, you know, hailed as the breakout star of that film and I watched that film having no clue she was Australian um, but she was she her American accent is amazing and she was so funny um, has she has amazing comedy chops um, and it's so not a surprise that she's got a new role um, with Daniel Radcliffe and, and Steve um, Biscemi in Miracle Workers as well so you know she's gone off and done these amazing things um, and yet, you know, Australia hasn't really gotten to the point of claiming her yet. And there's definitely that issue of, as you said, you know, who is the, the typical Australian and, 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 and do the media recognise them and celebrate them? And when they overlook people who are really obviously there, you know, like as, as you said, James Wayne and also Crazy Rich Asians, um, the cast of Crazy Rich Asians and then Geraldine as well. There's a pattern there that I think is really hard to ignore, and you and and the pattern is that these people are um, Australian people of color, and they may not just look like what um, traditional white Australia looks like. So, well, I I didn't know until like an hour ago. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> that um, Ronnie Cheng is on the Daily Show. Yeah, he I've never seen that mentioned. Yeah. It, like, He's doing, like, loads of stuff in America. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah it like... Kinda, Australia wasn't particularly generous to him in terms of, like, big roles. And now he's, like... He is one of the senior correspondents on The Daily Show. Like, it's... Which, uh, in arguably, a way more competitive market as well over in the States. Yeah. And, wild, and hey? traditionally, I think, having having a significant part on The Daily Show like invariably winds up to a bunch of like um, leads to a bunch of high profile work um he he does have a new series on the abc though ronnie cheng international student mm. is that new would you call that new is it new i think it's not i think it's new in australia i feel like i've seen it on american tv before then really yeah i thought it was um i definitely saw it advertised here before i saw it in australia oh well, it's got a a second season so, you know, right. 2017 well, middle of 2017 right. yeah that's newish newish, newish. Right. I'm, I'm being pedantic but again it's not like anyone's been kicking down my door telling me about it yeah um but yeah i think like something that to me was pretty illustrative that was that happened i guess it's impossible to know because everything happens so fast and so much these days uh several weeks ago i'm going to say um, which was something that we haven't touched on on the show before. The whole crazy furor around um, Carrie-Anne Kennelly on hmm. her stupid morning show, um, making some pretty clearly racist comments um, and then being mildly criticised by a co-host, <laughs> by a co-panellist. And to me, like that was, that I think kind of dovetails pretty nicely as like an illustrative case of who the Australian media landscape considers like an important figure to protect. Yes. Um, so, so for anyone who's not across that one, as I would expect anybody outside of Australia um, wouldn't and shouldn't be. Carrie <laughs> um, Ann Kennelly is a lady who is 10 million years old and has been on Australian TV for 9 million years. And she um, does, so she does some morning panel show um i believe it is like by a very long stretch the lowest rated daytime tv panel show um studio 10 it's got joe hildebrand on it and everything 
Um, and Carrie Ann Kennelly was making some comments about uh, all of the people who came out to demonstrate on Australia Day, saying that the date should be changed, and it's a celebration of genocide and all that kind of thing. Um, and she was making some pretty misguided comments about well, what have any of these people done about going out to remote Aboriginal communities and stopping them from uh, abusing their wives and hitting their children, this kind of thing. Uh, and so a co-panelist on the show, um, Yumi Steins, who is half Japanese, said, you're sounding pretty racist right now. And the entire studio audience went, oh. <laughs> and, and everybody immediately went, oh, oh, and leapt to the defense of Carrie Ann Kennelly. And it became a national debate for like several days. Um, and, and the entire thing, of course, was framed in the, the entire thing was framed as why did this lady attack Carrie Ann Kennelly? She was attacked. Um, and yeah, to, to me, I really sort of read that whole thing as like, yeah, interesting, like Yumi Steins has, I don't know, I, I guess I would consider her to have the the level of profile that someone who's on the radio and occasionally on TV has. Um, she had a lot more attention when she criticized a prominent white lady. Like, all of a sudden, she had way more of a profile and the news following her around every day. Um, so, you know, in this particular context, she was apparently much more worthy of negative attention mm. than positive attention. And everybody was far, far, far more willing to give Carrie Ann Kennelly, the white blonde lady, the benefit of the doubt in this situation. And I think it was uh, pretty telling. Kind of gives a clear picture of how the Australian media... Um, really struggles with talking about like racial itch issues and bigotry and everything in any kind of public space and how it was still preserved do their best to preserve the white you know um woman at who, who who's obviously done the tv presenting thing for ages um but it, it's also quite telling as well because isn't it funny that the the woman who um, called out racism is being attacked more than the woman who was racist or was speaking in, in a very um, yeah she was extremely racially racism. loaded way right, yeah um, and you know the abuse that Yumi Steins has felt from that you know going on her Twitter or her Instagram you can see the effects she's described the effects of that and I think it's pretty shocking you know because I think I mean I, when I just like followed up on this situation i just was quite shocked at how divided everyone was about it because i for me it was so obviously racist and it should have been called out and you know the first thing that carrie ann responded was i'm i'm offended it's <laughs> yeah. you know the first thing that she said was like her immediate response she wasn't like why or she didn't listen or she didn't ask questions it was immediately for her an offense. Um, and so I think there was just no dialogue that was ever going to happen between the two and even just carry out in general, there was never going to be any thoughtful discussion about it. Um, but she, yeah, she was more offended by being called a racist than, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, it's um, more, more offensive to have somebody suggest that a thing you're saying is a bit racist than it is to say very openly racist things on national TV. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, and like you're saying, as far as sort of preserving the status quo, I mean, that that's, I think that's the part of it as well. That's kind of staggering to me. Like I think Australian media and cultural commentary and all that sort of stuff. Um, while, while there is, you know, some fresh stuff out there by and large it seems like such a stagnant landscape like I, I feel like so many of the people who are on tv now were on tv when i was a kid mm -hmm. and they were on tv when my parents were kids 
Like Yeah, even if it's not the, the same people, it's the same makeup. It's like two white ladies yeah. and two white guys <laughs> on breakfast television. It hasn't changed like at all. <laughs> well, I feel like yeah, like the the people that they still trot out for stuff like the Logies, like you know, Burt Reynolds and not Burt Reynolds, sorry. Burt Newton. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Burt Reynolds, by the way. Um, Burt Newton and and like Carrie Ann Kennelly and stuff. That these people were legitimately celebrities, like when my parents were young, and they're still on there now. Like the the extent to which Australia goes to preserve the status of people who I don't actually understand. Like, do people think that like anybody young is getting on board with this do they think that they're like growing their audience or is it like so many other parts of australian media where they're just and politics as well where they're just desperate to hold on to this shrinking core of like a kind of rapidly dwindling old version (laughs) of australia because tv is just for boomers now right like most of us don't watch television and so they just keep the same old people on there. They keep showing boomers what they want to see because no one else is watching. Because we're yeah. all watching Netflix. Because we're all terrible millennials, right? Well, I mean, you know, on the on the other side of that, I think a lot of people our age are also watching things like the stuff that um, the ABC and the SBS are putting out. That's true. And that stuff tends to be far more diverse and have much younger people in it, like... You know, um, is it is it SBS that has like the fresh meat thing, or is that the ABC? That's ABC. Um, yeah, well, you know, and and I think Ronnie Cheng's series came out of one of those pilot pilot things where they sort of do a round of pilots and mm, family choose law, a couple of them based on how good. they go. Benjamin oh. Yeah, and yeah, and a, and a lot of that stuff that's coming out of of those. Uh, of those stations and being successful I think in part is also driven by the fact that they actually have like you know they've they've actually set up infrastructure for their streaming platforms um, because the the broadcast TV channels in Australia their their streaming platforms are fucking garbage <laughs> it's so terrible they like they like they they genuinely are barely functional um, which is obviously, again, just a sign of like, you know, waiting so long to try to adapt to the change in the market mm-hmm. um, that you that you eventually end up with, you know, a crippled TV station and a terrible streaming platform. But speaking of um, fresh and up and coming voices in media, nice segue there, am I right? <laughs> um, so Debbie, Debbie is the managing editor for a new film criticism site uh, called Rough Cut. Indeed. And um, how's that going? You guys only launched like in the last couple of weeks, I think? Yeah, I think two weeks ago, yeah, from today. Um, Yeah, no, so I was part of the Melbourne Film um, Festival's Critics Campus last year, um, which happened about August, and I met this really great group of um, film critics, um, you know, emerging film critics who want to talk and write in different ways about film um, and so we kind of put our all our, our efforts together and, and came up with this publication um, which is you know our goal is to write about you know films in the Australian landscape but also to shift and hopefully change the way that we talk about films um, so we have quite a a mixed media approach you know so now you know with podcasts a big thing um, um, so we we have also video essays and uh, reviews and features that are written I guess in a more I mean they are written in the traditional sense but some you know explore different ways of of tackling uh, like particular angles on film and so yeah I think you know, that's what the Australian film landscape has kind of been missing in, in terms of criticism um, over the last few years. I mean, we've had 4.3, which was an awesome Sydney publication that really kind of tried to cover as much of Australian stuff and what was happening now with releases and retrospectives and festivals. Um, but I think, you know, people want to hear, hopefully want to hear from a wider range of voices, um, people who are great at making video essays. You know, um, one of our critics, um, Ivana Brias, you know, she's 
you know, even in high, in high school, she made a Gone Girl um, video essay that kind of blew up virally. <laughs> um, you know, she compared it to, I think, Greek mythology. And it was featured on, you know, like IndieWire and Sight and Sound and stuff like that. And so she she's very talented um, in those respects, as well as writing as well. So, you know, hopefully it can be a platform for people to explore and challenge and test out the waters of what criticism can be, because, um, I guess the way that young people are reading media is completely different now than it was before, you know, before it was all newspapers and traditional media, but now, you know, it's all shifted online and there's so much content. And so how do you kind of um, absorb it? And like, where do you go and look and who do you read is are questions, you know, that, that are quite prevalent, I think. So hopefully we'll add to the conversation somehow. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that was basically the, why we started it in the first place. Yeah. I think um, like you're saying, there are so many different, forms of of criticism and dissection of film and everything now that people do really have such a diversity of choice in what kind of of content they would like to or like how they would like to see things broken down and approached and all that sort of stuff totally um which is really good i mean yeah i i think of like like you're saying when you used to just see reviews in the paper and someone obviously has 200 words to say <laughs> say whether or not you should go and like spend uh $15 on this thing or whatever um but yeah now you can you can get you know you can sort of uh, see whether or not you would you would like reviews that are yeah this this thing was fun or whether you would like a more sort of thorough examination of the themes of the film and how it's made and all that kind of thing I um I really like the video essay on there about um, Mikey and Nikki, mm-hmm. um, which was quite interesting and nicely done. Um, what have What have you been reviewing on there lately? Any Any good um, Any good picks for us? Any recommendations? Yeah, so I mean, a piece just came out like tonight. Um, I wrote on Vox Lux, which comes out in cinemas today. Um, it's the new Natalie Portman um, being like the rise of a pop star film. Um, and yet the film is completely not about that as well. Um, so when I went and saw it, you know, the first scene kind of grips you. It, it feels like a complete, it feels like a sequence that doesn't belong in the film that you're expecting to see. So, um, you know, you think it's going to be perhaps a star is born, you know, that type of feeling of, Oh, feel good. Um, pop music and, and and the troubles of what it is to be a pop star. But I think the film ends up turning into this critique and this really eerie, strange, disturbing look at how we consume modern celebrity culture and how um, celebrity image becomes very twisted from, from the person it originates from. So I think the film that hasn't been talked about enough. I mean, it premiered at the Venice Film Festival last year, but just after that, it seemed to have disappeared, um, which I'm really surprised. I was really surprised about actually when I came out of that film, because I was like, why isn't anyone talking about it? And Natalie Portman is incredible in it. I mean, she's great all the time, but she completely shifts in this role um, like she did in Jackie a few years ago. Um, so I, I, she's probably one of the best performances I've seen uh, this and last year uh, with along, along with Olivia Coleman and The Favourite. So, you know, I find it really quite shocking that this film has, you know, disappeared. But I hope people go and see it because it's, it's not what you expect <laughs> at all. Excellent. Well, um, now that we've managed to trick you into being here for this long, yeah. uh, Ben would like to pitch a review for the website. I understand that he has seen a movie recently. Sure. And he would like to talk to the people about it. Uh, well, I mean, I just, I really want an excuse to say this in a medium where people can hear it, but uh, Aquaman fucking ruled. There is one of the few good superhero <laughs> movies I've seen that I came out of the cinema fucking being like, I had so much goddamn fun. Uh, that movie kicks ass. And I feel like I didn't talk to anyone that actually saw it. Despite it being, uh, as you mentioned in the article, it was like mm. DC's highest grossing movie so far. Mm. Yeah. 
Also, um, okay. I, I mean, I haven't seen it, so I can't. I'm like part of responsible, part of responsible for that too. But yeah, clearly enough people have seen it to give it money. But I don't. Yeah, yeah. I've not yeah. met other people that have. This is the part that's confusing really? me. But this is a solid recommendation. To every single person listening to the podcast. Uh, there are two good superhero movies. They are Thor Ragnarok, uh, and they are Aquaman. A movie that takes itself so seriously about being so ridiculous that it is perfect. It is the perfect tonal mix. It's like everything you get from watching Highlander, where the concept is insane, but everyone wholeheartedly embraces it. It's that. It plays it totally straight. That's the the way to do it. There is four points in the film where people say the words Ocean Master, referring to some sort of (laughs) title that they never fully explain. And those four times are funnier than anything intentionally funny I have seen in a comedy film in the last (laughs) 10 years. And it's just because it's a ridiculous concept and the actors don't shy away from it. They don't mug at the camera. They just do it. There are people riding sharks. There are people riding giant seahorses. There's I've heard giant... there's an octopus on drums. Uh, there is. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's the one thing I know about that film. <laughs> so that that 10 seconds uh, where they show the octopus, they have the two best jokes of the movie back to back, and they give them <laughs> half a second each. So there's like this weird sight gag either immediately before or after that where it's like the lord of the sea realm or whatever fighting Jason Momoa. They show an octopus playing the fucking drums, and then for, like, half a second, like, so quick, you can't even read it, they show that there's this billboard up at this giant, baroque, underwater, medieval death coliseum with lava in it. They've got this little billboard up that has a pros and cons list of who should be the leader of the underwater kingdom. Like, and obviously, the existing ruler is, like, handsome, strong very good, whatever, and then all of the Jason Momoa stuff is, like, terrible, shouldn't do it, the guy sucks. Like, <laughs> they don't linger on it, they're not smug about it, you know, they're not doing that, like, because Marvel's whole tone is like, oh, look, we're being silly about being a, a comic book movie, ah, oh, we're not taking anything very seriously, and DC's problem has always been they're trying to be very, very gritty to earn mm. taking it seriously, whereas this is perfect because it doesn't deserve to be taken seriously and yet they've done it and I love well, that amazing. The, the problem with that whole series seemed to be that they um, they had the, the Christopher Nolan ones initially mm. and then they said done, the tone is set forever <laughs> and then they got Zack Snyder in and said keep doing the Watchmen thing but with Batman <laughs> versus Superman and it just seems like the further away they get from that tone the more successful they are um, that's about all we got time for today. Thank you very much for joining us, Debbie. Um, you can find Debbie uh, all over the internet. You can find her at Twitter um, at Debbie underscore Z-H-O-U. Um, you can find Rough Cut on Twitter at uh, Rough Cut underscore film. And you can find the site where all the, all the reviews and the essays and business are at at roughcutfilm.com. Uh, and of course, from us... As always, you can get an extra bonus episode every week if you would like by going over to patreon.com forward slash Buenta Vista. Getting out your credit card, busting open your musty ass wallet. Come on, when's the last time you cracked that? Send us out? a $5 bill. I would love when's that. When's the last Supposed time you opened your wallet? Is that the question that you're rhetorically asking the <laughs> listeners? Yep. Probably yep. today, I would assume would be true of most people. <laughs> Maybe, maybe not. That's that's what we're here to find out. <laughs> I don't think that's true either. Uh, well, maybe. Falsehoods. Hey, maybe somebody will be able to post us a five dollar bill because we're going to get a PO box so people can send us stupid stuff in the mail. Oh this God. is going to end horribly. Just the worst. Just but a yep, mail I bomb. admire <laughs> your optimism. Uh, yeah, let's. Well, we're going to see how it goes. We'll discuss, we'll discuss it. We'll discuss it. We're going to get mailed like a dead rat within a month. That's my feeling. <laughs> well, now you've put the idea in someone's head. Don't do that. I feel like that. it's kind of on you. Yeah. All right. Yeah, fair enough. I used the secret to make that happen. <laughs> put it up on your vision board. Nice picture of a dead rat. Uh, thank you again, Debbie. And thank you to you playing at home or wherever you're listening to the thing. Let's not get into 
logistics of when and how you're listening to this. Uh, thanks, everybody, and goodbye. Bye. Bye.